Welcome to Older Women Live. I'm Rosemary Wallin. Older Women Live features women's voices from across the globe and revisits over a decade of interviews I've done with a variety of people involved in social justice issues. This series provides background to contemporary issues like age, race, gender, and the impact of globalization on women's lives. Since the British left the Indian subcontinent in 1947 after partition, certain territories remain contested. Both Kashmir and Manipur claim independence and do not see themselves as part of either India or Pakistan. In this episode, we talk to Sophia Ahmed and Bina Lakshmi Nepran about the occupation of these territories by the Indian Army and the massive human rights violations which continue to happen. I speak with Sophia Ahmed, who is a human rights activist and student at the University of Birmingham, and she's the chair of the Kashmir Awareness Society. Bina Lakshmi Nepran is a humanitarian and author who advocates for ending gun culture and bringing peace to her home in Manipur. We start with my conversation with Sophia in Birmingham. Sophia Ahmed, can you tell us what is happening in Kashmir now? In Kashmir, it's the most militarised place on earth at the moment. There's up to half a million troops in a small area, in a small valley, occupying the land there. There's all manner of human rights abuses going on. Recently, we found mass graves. Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International have called for people across the world to try and investigate this and get India to investigate these and see where these people have come from. We've also got a big problem with disappeared peoples. They found mass graves of about, they found 9,000 um, sites, but they think it's up to about 10,000, 12,000 people possibly in the mass graves. You're saying there are half a million troops up there. And when we're talking up there, we mean literally up there. Kashmir is, of course, in a mountainous country. Who are these troops? They are Indian troops. They're on behalf of the Indian state. They are carrying out mass human rights abuses um, from everything from using um, excessive force. There's been thousands of cases of rape, of deaths incarcerating young people. In 2010, they killed 114 young people during peaceful protests. So they were literally just shot or hit in the head with something. And none of those cases have been investigated. The reason for this is because there's a special power. There's a special law that only applies to people within the Kashmiri region and within the conflict zone, which basically helps to exonerate any of the person, army personnel that do anything. So they're not liable to stand charge for any of the crimes that they commit in that area. Um, it's a Special Forces Act, Armed Forces Special Powers Act, and it is something that is basically made up to try and shield some of the abuses that are going on there. Um, there's a complete media blockout as well. The Indian um, government, they've used powers to stop people using Twitter and Facebook to get all the information out bef- uh, before, um, you know, complete blackouts in the area, got people to um, be in arresting activists that use Twitter and uh, Facebook to try and get the message out to the rest of the world. Um, They regularly get their houses raided, people coming in, kicking the doors in, taking away young young boys, 13 to 14 years old, keeping them without charge, um, locked up for days, nobody knows where they are, that kind of thing. So, um, you know, there's so many human rights abuses going on there, but because the media doesn't see that... uh, well, they have a blockade, but they don't take interest in what's going on there. Um, and it's a shame because nobody knows what's going on. 
Uh, now, this has been a contested area, of course, since the independence of India in 1947. Can, can, you, can you give us a little bit of the history, a little bit of the background of why it's continuing now in 2012? Um, it's continuing because both parties or all parties um, are refusing to come to the table and um, come, with, come up with a, a deal that was suitable. Um, it's continuing because the UN has failed to um, action the sanctions that it's had on the country. It has failed to ratify some of the, um, you know, some of the, the, the resolutions. The resolutions that they had on the. Um, Basically, they decided to give the people of Kashmir um, the right to choose if they want to go with India or Pakistan or, well, some people are calling for independence now, but they've not been given that right until this day. Um, and both sides, technically both sides are under occupation because I think a lot of people forget that the Pakistani side of Kashmir is also under occupation. Um, and there's human rights abuses going on on that side as well. Um, and, we, you know, in, in all fairness, we should be highlighting both sides, um, but they definitely increased in the Indian side and there's definitely a lot more um, issues that we need to be dealing with on that side and it's uh, the failure of Western governments it's a failure of Britain because Britain, essentially it's because of Britain that the situation is the way that it is so they need to do something about it I met Safia one rainy Saturday evening at a demonstration in support of Malala Yousafzai who had just been gunned down in her homeland and had been taken to Birmingham in the UK for treatment. And Safia was there and we got talking. Now, Safia is like many, many people who live in Birmingham. Her family is from Kashmir, but she actually has never been to Kashmir. The family history is one of dislocation and exile and sadness. And so Safia is trying to raise awareness of what is actually happening in Kashmir. After colonialism, after the uh, the British left India, they, it was up to them to try and resolve these issues, but they didn't. And, you know, it's not only within India or within the subcontinent that these issues are prevalent. You can see them across the globe. And they're the remnants of colonialism. And if colonialism is to blame and Britain is to blame, they should be resolving this issue. But they refuse to do so, mainly because... Um, it's important for them to keep good ties with India at the moment due to its rising economical powers. And uh, to be honest with you, that's the main reason why they refuse to get involved in the Kashmir issue. Um, in 2010 also, during these protests, while uh, 114 young men were killed, David Cameron was in Kashmir at that time. And he briefed the people that he took with him and told them, do not mention anything about Kashmir because we do not want to have these kind of, you know, we don't want to hurt our relations with the Indian government. And they chose to ignore the human rights abuses that were going on because, like I said, India is a raising, rising econo economy and it sort of suits them to keep their ties with them and keep um, you know, things flowing and to forget all the human rights abuses that are going on there. And the hypocrisy is clear for everybody to see. You know, there's, wherever human rights, uh, it makes sense for people to go in and champion human rights uh, makes it sense for the British government to go in and champion human rights they will go there but you know wherever it doesn't 
benefit them. They'll forget them. They'll forget that they don't happen. They'll forget that women. We're here for Malala today, but women in in Kashmir are being raped and killed, and you know their their family are being killed. Their husbands are missing. In in Kashmir at the moment, we have a problem. They call it the half widows. So the women whose men have gone missing, who hus- whose husbands have gone missing, um, they don't know where they are. They've been missing for 15 years, up to 20 years. They're half widows. They're stuck in a limbo. They don't know where they're going. They don't know whether they're still married, whether their husbands are alive or not. And they say there's up to half a... M- how many? I can't give you exact facts, but there's a quite, you know, in the thousands of women who live in limbo, who don't understand what's going on, where their husbands are or anything, because they've just disappeared off the face of the earth. And nobody cares, nobody seems to be going out there and trying to help these people or raising the awareness that needs to be, that these are women as well. They've got hearts, they've got minds, they've got, you know, issues that we should be um, looking at and highlighting equally as we are doing here. The thing that we have to highlight is the reason why they are in that situation in the first place is due to the Western powers. It is due to Britain, in a sense, and the historic misdemeanours, should I say, of Britain. They should, have, they should have done something a long time ago. When they left, they left that place in chaos. And it's up to them to try and sort it out, but they choose not to. And that doesn't mean that we're going to stay here and stick, keep quiet about it, because we have to shout and we have to tell people what's going on there, and we have to let people know that this is what's been done in our name and it's our you know remnants of our historical you know problems that are colonial, are past. colonial past that's um, you know causing all these problems now we have a duty to make our government go in there and say well sorry we're here to come and sort things out and stop all this pro- these issues going on because it's it's our problem to start with can I ask you what some of the resources are of Kashmir this stunningly beautiful country mm. We do have issues at the moment. I mean, it's, uh, Kashmir has been um, described as heaven on earth. It used to be a tourist hotspot, you know, where everybody from the Mughals right down to, um, you know, the British, they loved Kashmir because of the beauty there. It lays on the Himalayas, on the foothills, foothills of the Himalayas. Um, and the sheer beauty of the place is magnificent. You can't describe it. And they have no resources. They, 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 they don't have any autonomy. They don't have any freedom. They live with restrictions. and We have minerals, but I think one of the main issues in Kashmir is that um, the reason why the Pakistan and India are fighting over it so much is due to water. And we know that in the future, you know, there are going to be issues with water. And majority of the water supply for both India and Pakistan starts in Kashmir. So that's their tributaries. They start off from that area. So they depend on their agricultural growth with water. They depend on their economical growth. It depends on water. And it all starts from Kashmir. And this is the reason why there's this big tussle between the both of them in order to keep that area, in order to keep hold of those resources. There are minerals in Kashmir. We've got gold. We've got coal as well. A lot of coals and rubies and precious gems and stuff. But obviously that's not going to be harnessed if there's still conflict going on there and that kind of thing. So hopefully, you know, we're just about raising awareness and getting people to try and get their governments to understand what's going on there and do something out of humanity. Well, thank you very much, Sophia. In the northeast corner of India, 
In the foothills of the Himalayas, there's Manipur, a state which has been occupied by the Indian army for many, many years. More than 5,000 women have lost their lives or been wounded by gun violence. Writer-activist Binalakshmi Nepran is the founder of the Manipur Women Gun Survivors Network. At a recent Women's Peace Conference in The Hague in Holland, I sat down with Bina Nepran and we talked of the women's resistance to violence in Manipur. Bina, can I start by asking you about the situation in Manipur? What's the history? Why is the conflict there? Manipur is a 3,000-year-old Asiatic kingdom. It was the last kingdom in the Indian or Asiatic subcontinent to be annexed by the British in 1891. Our commander-in-chief was executed because of that. It was, it was quite a brutal history. And so it became a part of British India. And when Britain left India in 1947, they said you could either be independent or join the Union of India. Our people have been an independent nation state for over 3,000 recorded years in history. We chose to be independent, but the government of India did not allow us. They imprisoned our king and made him sign a forced merger agreement on 15th of October 1949. That is how Manipur was taken over, as an act which we call unconstitutional. That is a result of the violence that is happening in our region, in this part of India, till today. And I think it's important to say that your, your area of India is the northeast, and it's really quite isolated, isn't it? Yes. Now, what has happened is what happened to Manipur also happened to many other states like Sikkim. So now, all this area of India, called as a direction as the northeast, is actually home, was home to four beautiful kingdoms and different other, you know, indigenous communities like the Naga community, like the Kuki community, like the Kasi community, who had their own beautiful rich tradition and history. That region is now dubbed by India as northeast of India. We have a special ministry of development. So we, they have turned all of us, 272 beautiful indigenous ethnic groups, into a direction. Not only that, not only did they turn into direction, they imposed a martial law here in 1958 to make us, to subdue us into submission. We have got 300,000 troops operating on the ground in India's northeast region. So today I speak not just on behalf of my place in Manipur, I speak on behalf of 45 million citizens living in the northeast of India, belonging to eight beautiful states which are struggling through to become full citizens of our country. Bina, I met at an international conference for the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom at The Hague in 2015. We were celebrating the 100th year of the organisation. I didn't know too much about Manipur, but when I met Bina, I was entranced. She was wearing her clothes from her area, which are all handwoven because the women there weave, and she spoke with great passion and clarity. And I zipped over and asked her whether I could interview her too. So we met the following day and we had breakfast together. And after that, on a full stomach, we talked. 
When we think of the independence of India in 47, we just think of the newsreels that we've seen of the British leaving, but we don't think about what they're leaving. And so you're just explaining to us these four beautiful kingdoms. So right now, I always say the idea of India, we are still not a nation. For me, India is an idea which is still in the making. That is the reason why even if India calls itself the world's largest democracy, as long as military boots are in our part of India, we will not accept that India is a full democracy. What kind of democracy where martial law is imposed, where anybody could be arrested, picked up, raped, killed on mere charge of suspicion, and we cannot even go to courts? What kind of democracy which violates even our own constitution? So we are still, yes, after the British left, a lot of focus was on India and Pakistan. But what happened in the eastern front of India was another mess, which is still going on, which has resulted in 50,000 killed as a result in my part of the India that the world doesn't know, because news from this part of India doesn't reach out. Even our work had to do with a lot of struggle where we were told, don't speak about northeast of India, outside the four corners of India. You are as Indians as we are, yet we are always asked, which country are we from? The term chinkies is given to people living in this part of India. Massive racial discrimination, profiling and abuse. Our women are taught that the stereotyping of our, of our people from this part of India is first. We are called chinkies. People who look like they think that our allegiance is towards China or other countries than to India. Number third, they think our women are morally loose that they can do anything. So many of them are cases where we have packed dead bodies of women because they were brutally murdered in their own flats in India's capital. So we have all these challenges right now which we are struggling, but I all call it as a part of a churning process. What we are doing is to deepen democracy. In spite of the fact that we are threatened for our work, we continue in the belief that what we are doing is right. It is actually asking India to adhere to its own constitution which says every Indian has a right to life. We don't have a right to life there. Number two is the fact that India has signed up to Universal Declaration of Human Rights, being a member of UN. So we are all asking those principles to be followed by the great nation which Mahatma Gandhi was born and killed. Prime Minister Modi and his uh, cabinet gives a lot of sound bites saying that they want to develop the northeast region of India. Their development paradigm is to build 164 mega dams, in one of the world's highest seismic zones. We are in the top eight seismic zones of the world. We saw the earthquake in Nepal, and it's coming to our region too. The kind of development which the present government of India wants, we reject that. It's not a development which is sustainable. It's not a development which takes into confidence the people of the land there. So we are deeply concerned, and we will resist. It sounds as though you must have a lot of resources up there for India to be this interested. We all know that India's just got these new trade agreements, hasn't it? You know, the extraction industries are really welcomed. Absolutely. We are at the threshold of history where people have to fight back. And this is not a cliché. Conflicts are always taking place in areas which are resource-rich, and absolutely you are right, bang on. The northeast part of India is a region where India's first oil was found in Assam. It is a place where we have uranium, and the hydroelectric potential comes from there, at the cost of our lives and our land and our future. We are not against development per se, 
but development which do not take into confidence the wishes of the people takes into but rather makes us into a stupid people which they can just think they can buy off our leaders and sign in a fake agreement and actually rape our land our resource it's raping it's not about rape about women raping mother earth for your greed and mahatma gandhi says is enough for everyone's need but for not for everyone's greed and we are not saying we will not share but do it equitably they are not doing it equitably it's not easy times for many of us of the minority community indigenous community people who live in so called fringes of indian society the indian that is defined as the gan indo gangetic belt where it's only focus on higher caste and india dominated by high caste people who are only in delhi mumbai kolkata yes they have the money the resource and they have the military but for us we also know that when people resist no bullet can touch us too. they may kill some of us which they have done but our voices when amplified by people like you in canada one day we will get to ensure that our governments <clears throat> do what they are mandated to not act as spokesperson of multinational and corporations in my country what is daily life like for the women living under this military terror Our lives start very early and end around five o'clock because after five o'clock it's like a military curfew. We live it each day. I never knew about nightlife till I came out of our region. We cannot even dream to visit friends for dinner. It's impossible in our part of India because it's like a military curfew there. Only military insurgents or dogs move at night. It's a state of fear that we are subjected to, and we try to finish all our meetings before three four. by four o'clock people start panicking to go home the reason is it's only in the night where mostly the arrests are done the killings are done so people try to get home for their safety but even we are not safe there so we live our life in a constant state of fear i have lost my own niece in in a bomb blast my parents were really shot so when you ask me how our daily life we live knowing anything can happen any time we are mentally prepared if any of our family members we have we may cry but that's the way it is the other thing of um, sexual violence in conflict very interesting thing we have got rape happen in india every 22 minutes india is a country not safe for women whether it's manipur or delhi or other place but in my part of india the rapes are committed at gunpoint our military have committed acts of rape they raped a woman called thangjaman roma in july 2004 but the manner in which she was raped was what made our women in manipur strip in front of the paramilitary they shot her seven times in her vagina to destroy evidence of rape till now no one has been punished for that rape How are the women in your group organized? Initially we started with survivors. Survivors of it could be rape, it could be that the husbands were shot dead, their children have been picked up as child soldiers, any survivors of rape of domestic violence. But actually it started with survivors of gun violence. We set up this network, the Manipur Women Gun Survivors Network in 2004 to respond to a humanitarian crisis. in which a lot of women young women in manipur were left bereaved because young men in the age of 19 to 41 were shot dead on suspect of being insurgents so it left behind a lot of young women with young children 
When we realized no support was coming to them, we set up the Manipur Women Gun Survivors Network. Before that, I wanted to be a physicist. <laughs> but the situation in Manipur make us turn into this direction because we have to respond. What we did was this. We went village to village looking for those families whose loved ones have been killed in this conflict. We started looking how they lived their lives and we realized that more than 90% come from very, very poor situations. We started responding to their basic needs. Put food on the table. Is there food on the table? Are the children going to school? Where is their livelihood coming? We were not trained in that, but just a basic essence, let's live, let them live. So we started checking out in each and every household who had suffered. And that's how we started with 120 women. And we started opening their bank accounts. We started giving them money to start with weaving. So because we realized all they require was a little capital of 2,000 Indian rupees, which must be like 15 to $20. That's all they needed to start a life in many parts of our country. And they didn't even have that. So from our fellowship money, we started giving out to those people and ensured that they are able to get the yarn, the wool, the cotton to start weaving. And they started selling. And what we do, we realize the power of women and men working together. And what we did was, over 300 villages, now we have formed 37 women groups. So we have galvanized women into groups because, you see, one person cannot change everything. So we believe that we need to form groups, work in total solidarity, and then force and pound our government mechanism to get our rights. That is the way we do. So what we do is first put food on the table, and once they are at least eaten properly, the children are going to school, we start giving the second stage of teaching them their rights. Teaching them about the Constitution, what's there, teaching them about 1325s, teaching them that we have their rights, and then ensuring that they fight their cases in the legal court, however difficult it may be. We just give them the act to file a complaint, even if it's not followed up. And finally, now we are really proud to tell you that now we are ensuring that we realize if we women have to really take charge of things, we need it to get into decision-making processes. We realized the 17 peace process in my part of India, not a single woman inside it. So we are, by the end of this year, trying to get 12 women inside it because talking is fine, but doing is something else. So we would like to join our talks with actions. And that's why we say some of our women survivors from very poor circumstances, we're preparing them to contest elections from the ground, to get into local assemblies, local bodies, and we will do it. We have no money, but we still we will do it. Because if money would change the world, the millionaires would have changed the world. They didn't. So it's not money. It's more synergy, solidarity, and a conviction of what's right. And we are getting there. And that's how we as a team, 20,000 of us working in 300 villages of this northeast of India. And you wouldn't believe we had our first Women Peace Congregation on 25th of March 2015 this time. And we'll be pushing the government of India in September, International Day of Peace, to listen to our demands. Manipur has more than 104 years of women's movement. So we have very strong tradition of our grandmothers, our great-grandmothers, our mothers, having resisted violence. We have three things right now. We have the women's movement called the Mayra Paibe movement, bamboo torch bearers who patrol the streets at night because that's when they arrest our men and women. Then we have... Uh, a wonderful woman whom I know very closely, Irom Sharmila, who was on a 15-year-old hunger strike 
and we have our generation which are trying to get that link between what has happened on the ground to making the change on a national international level so three layers so irom sharmila is 42 year old young woman who started fasting on november 2000 to protest against the killing of 13 civilians in a village called malo they were gunned down death we work with a woman whose son was shot dead in that episode a woman called sinam chandrajini her two sons and her sister were shot dead in this massacre so irom sharmila started protesting against this martial law and she is on a 15 year old hunger strike so the the government of manipur what they did was they charged her on suicide attempt to suicide and they are feeding her through the nose gandhians in india have rejected her saying this is not gandhian but for us she is an icon a woman of courage who have stood by i believe I, i communicate very closely with her there are a lot of challenges to her mode of struggle but what we realize is that she is an icon and will remain an icon for us against this martial law we are rallying and we are with her fully in the process we also trying to f- ensure that the government of india is lifting this act so that she could make her eat on the other hand we have talked to her saying even gandhi ji used fast as a means to an end not to an end to a means because we want her healthy we want her strong and we want her to lead our movement she is an icon but icons also have to come out and do things <laughs> so we at this juncture we are uh, negotiating with the government to remove that act so that she could eat we also negotiating with her so that she could channel her iconic status and join us in the movement out there for change what are some of the other strategies that are used by the women uh, women in manipur as early as late 1970s our mothers have built bamboo huts if you come to manipur today they are there in those bamboo huts every night taking turns and when they see an army convoy coming they take the stone and do a clanging song the lamp post and women gather so that is the first historical line of movement our women in manipur have, have done we are just a tiny dot in their entire movement trolling the streets of night they've engaged with ensuring that the issue is known and engage even the government of india on these issues as i said when thangjo manorama was raped and murdered in 2004 our women stripped they stripped I don't know whether you have seen that image they stripped and they said Indian army come and rape us extraordinary forms of protest that women in Manipur have done their stories never come out you see that's the tragedy their stories of courage of collective courage one person cannot change this world it's too much collective strength of women is what is needed to drive home the point and but their stories of collective courage never comes out that is something which we are also looking at why is that so for talking about these issues we have been called anti-nationals in our country one day india will thank us for deepening democracy we are not anti-nationals we are people who believe in the basic essence of rights and justice for people whose voices have never been out there and we want right thinking individuals men women of my country india a country which gave non-violence to the world and to friends around the world to please listen to what's happening and help us to get our voices out to ensure that we are able to move our governments whom we have created to think right to bring that sense of justice and peace in our hearts in our villages in our towns in our localities 
we are all connected in one form or the other. If today I espouse for Manipur, it's not because I'm parochial and thinking only of this. Charity begins at home, they say. If I cannot change my region, how can I claim to change the world? So if we have to make our places right for our children to live a peaceful life. Thank you so much for listening and our love and good wishes to the people of Canada too who are listening to this that please come and visit us you know change starts peace is not when there's a peace talk peace is when you taste each other's food wear each other's clothes visit each other's homes it starts like that it's when people visit each other connect with each other feel that love in each other because nation building cannot be done at gunpoint it has to be done with a lot of love and care if you would like more information about Bina Lakshmi Nepran and the women that she works with, you can go to the Manipur Women Gun Survivors Network. They have a website which is very up to date. You can also go to Control Arms Foundation of India. Control Arms Foundation of India. And the last website that I'm going to give you is the Northeast India Women's Initiative for Peace which goes by N-E-I-W-I-P. Bina Nepran also has a Twitter account, which is at Bina Nepran, B-I-N-A, capital N-E-P-R-A-M. You were just listening to episode 9 of Older Women Live, the podcast. On this episode, you heard Sophia Ahmed and Bina Lakshmi Nepran. Older Women Live is produced by Michelle Macklem and me, Rosemary Wally. Older Women Live is a production of Aging, Communications and Technologies and CKUT 90.3 FM, both in Montreal, Canada. You can listen to more episodes by subscribing on iTunes or visiting our website at actproject.ca slash OWL.